Please stand for a moment. Uh, and hear the reading of God's word. And, and I am asking you to stand just because it helps when you're going to sit more. Um, but it is a good custom to hear God's word in reverence and standing as we're able. This is Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living. Be seated. And pray with me again. Father, there are words here prepared to be spoken in your presence, in your name. And here are your people assembled. And it is your love that is to be meted out. Your son, who is the the substance of this covenant. And we pray that you would work by your Spirit now in us with your word and the preaching of it. We pray in your Uh, it would be handy for you to have your, your Bible open. Um, the Pew Bible, that's page 1169. Um, not absolutely necessary, but it probably would be kind of handy. And this, I've read the broader context, but our text here today is 5 through 7. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Christian here. The Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God in victory. Consequently, your business is to kill sin. Christians here. Jesus' Jesus's heavenly victory is your victory. Therefore, on earth now, you are called to attack sin. You are not simply commanded to stop sin or avoid sin or minimize sin. You are to kill it by acting with trust in the Lord Jesus. Only faith in Christ can carry out this holy violence. Put to death, therefore. Killing your sin is not just a command. It is a conclusion. Putting your sin to death is not even the fundamental command. 
Christ died for your wickedness. And he rose from the dead for your just justification. And you see at the right hand of God. The fundamental command is to hear the gospel and trust in the Savior and to live by this good news, to live by faith. Our text this for today springs from Paul's previous command. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This is the rationale, the reasonableness, the momentum carried forward in Paul's command. Put to death, therefore. Christians hear. Jesus' heavenly victory is your victory. Therefore, on the earth now, you are called to attack your sin. God has given his word as a tool of the Spirit to invigorate you with the risen life of the Lord Jesus. So I preach to you these written words. Here in simple grammar and clear expression is God's provision for you. Verses 5 through 7 are one, a command, two, a direct object, and third, a pair of supporting reasons. But the rationale is grander, heavenly and glorious. <laughs> the violence and the victim and the very specific reasons are earthly. In your fight against your sinfulness, you're in the ordinary and grid of life, but you are invested with the goodness and the glory of heaven. You need to understand the verb, the direct object, and the reasons. You need to understand, but be clear, the goal is not simply understanding. The goal is killing. You're in a deadly serious fight with sin. Christian here. The Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God in victory. Consequently, your business is to kill sin. Now, odd as it may sound, it is not the command that troubles us so much as the direct object, our sins. Speaking of Christian sins frequently, and, and rather strangely, stirs up confusion. It is easy to speak of sins in days or months or or years gone by, the, the struggles you had. The closer the sin is to now, well, and of course, there is, there's a wholesome shame that is fresh with today's sins. In fact, that, that twinge and even ache, they deserve a, a care and a modesty. The supposed virtue of transparency, letting it all hang out, is very rarely what the Bible calls wisdom. Our sins are not like business, even though Christ himself has carried them in his body on the tree. So before we get to the verb and direct object, let's notice the one obvious fact of Paul's command here. Paul expects that Christians have sins that need to be killed. Paul expects that the Lord Jesus' victory is going to have fresh combat and conquering day in and day out. Of course, there's no complacency, but there is no silly perfectionism. Christians are not people who have stopped sinning. Christians are people alive with the warrior Christ 
He was overturning the sin that racked this world. We confess our sins in worship each Lord's Day because our sins are serious and there is no ointment for them but our Jesus. We confess our sins because we have no fear of condemnation and we earnestly want them killed. We are at fault and we want the godliness we do not deserve. We apologize to each other and accept correction from each other. We cut some of our sentences off in the middle because sins are real. And killing sin is much of the glory we have in Christ. Until that day when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what are you commanded to kill? What is the direct object? Who is the condemned criminal? Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. While the focus on sexual sin rings with our own society's urgency, perhaps, it's kind of a surprising list. The summary term is dramatically expansive. What is earthly in you? Um, how many things fall into that category? And then the list seems oddly specific. The seventh commandment, but in layers from actions inward to motive. And then you get a twist, covetousness, the tenth commandment, which is idolatry to the first commandment. We'll get to the verbs and the violence. But first, the victim must be understood. If you're going to kill, you must see your target clearly. Why would you kill, quote, what is earthly in you. This is not a rejection of your body. A, God created you in his image, a man or a woman, French or Nigerian or whatever. He only created good things. You are a good thing. B, the Son of God, not only as our catechism summarizes, became a man with a true body and a reasonable soul, but also, as the catechism says, so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The Christ seen at the right hand of God now is a man, a body, in all the ways that you and I are bodies. Perhaps this seems obvious, but it's tremendously important. The false teachers at Colossae, as we referenced before, but also now, today, counterfeit things in the name of Christ would tell you to serve God by denying, even violating the goodness of your body. No. What is, what is earthly in you is a comprehensive expression for anything and everything that is at odds with God's goodness and opposed to his glory. The heavenly is summarized in Christ's resurrection. Heavenly gestures at a man free from sin. All that Christ gives. Earthly. Earthly is what will be put out by that victory and that renovation and that wonder that he will become. 
earthly in all the ways that sin has tangled itself into our lives, our character, even our most profound experiences of who we think we are. What is earthly in you has all the breadth and depth and detail expressed in the Ten Commandments. Killing here, killing what is earthly in you, it refers to that same sweeping call of Jesus' words. Whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anything and everything about your motives and goals and actions may fall under the sentence of death. You're not called to kill a few sins, some sins. The sins that any virtuous, modern, considerate, respectable American considers unacceptable. Psalm 119, 96, the 96 verse is fitting. The psalmist says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So why does Paul turn a laser focus on sexual sin? Having stretched out the breadth of sin as wide as the earth, for you can, you can take aim, he immediately goes for the depth of sin so that you will strike deep. The point is not only the depth of sin, how deeply you must strike. The point is the commonplace championing of sin is normal and natural. Unlike the Jewish society in the first century, Gentile society regarded sexual sin as simply as natural as eating. Everyone eats. Fast food is enjoyable. Refined people are foodies. The employment of prostitutes was like going out to eat. Slaves were available, and they were just slaves. Teenage boys needed mentors, and they were considered enjoyable company. Men liked to be men with men. Cross-dressing was taken as exotic. And everyone enjoys variety. This is the logic. This is the commonplace. This is everywhere in that Hellenistic society. And at the bottom, the physical experience was considered just life. Nothing more than life in the body. And it's perhaps worth noticing that our own society's progress with any attention to people like us who live before us does look like progress. Paul's not just being a theologically correct prude here. He knows where the Colossians live. He knows the sin that seems like being a normal adult to them. What are the sins that seem like being a normal adult to us? He is putting his finger on the place where social norms become personal slavery. So yes, you need to think about your wicked draw to our society's disgusting digital media. But we need to ponder more widely. Paul is not just being profound. He's piercing them. 
but for us? Is it the viciousness and self-righteousness and puritanical rage of our present politics? Is it the racist contempt that's fallen out of fashion, but still has a, a traditional shine to it in some places? Is it our oblivious and frivolous wealth that appears in our entertainment binging or our old-fashioned gluttony and self-indulgence? Is it indifference to our neighbors and coldness toward the acquaintances that crowd our day-to-day -day lives? Part of our fellowship in the Holy Spirit will be discernment, coming to recognize together what is earthly in us. And as we read God's Word together, we also need to seek His instruction together. For this knowledge, we must pray together. Because you don't live in first century Colossae. But no. 21st century Pequay doesn't have better, more wholesome resources. And you need to know, what is my target? Whatever it is, however precious it is, no matter how normal the world assumes it to be, you are called to give. Listen. Now, Paul addresses sexual sin as only one swath of the breadth of sin. But again, it's to draw your holy violence towards the depth of sin. He will address uh, speaking evil below in verse 8. You can take up theft or denying Sabbath rest to those dependent on you or you can take up abusing God's name. God's commandment is exceedingly broad. But Paul's focus in taking one swath of the breath is following the poisonous fruit down to the rotten root from the body parts of sexual morality to the hidden idolatry of coveting. Here's the point. Killing sin is not civilizing sin's behavior. Killing sin is not employing enough self-control to avoid public embarrassment. Killing sin is not repressing your desires to ensure that they only manifest in evangelically acceptable ways. Paul's list about sexual sin moves from hands to heart in five steps. For us, Sexual morality is almost a polite term. Paul's Greek noun is not. It is body parts. It is actions. It's broad as the shameful violation of marriage and the degradation of the unity that makes two into one, makes society into something that elaborates on the family. These are the scandals that are rightly deplored under that hashtag MeToo, and these are also the perversions being championed today as freedom. Outward actions. Yes, you can take pictures of it. Whether that embarrass you or make you think impressive. The second term we also use almost euphemistically, impurity. What is that? Impurity is readiness, willingness, poison, looking for the opportunity. 
It sees what it can actually do and ponders or fantasizes. Not going to go on yet. It looks for exceptions, situations to get away with sin carefully. Impurity is not just the want to or the wish to. It's the watching for and the quiet warming towards the possibility of maybe of an opportunity. Impurity thinks often wrongly that nobody can see it. You must kill both the actions and this jockeying for position. Not just the one that comes after the word stop. And passion and evil desire, he speaks of, are a similar pair. Passion is that visceral, that inarticulate push in your chest or the base of your neck, that, that clearly physical sensation of craving that stirs when you see or imagine what you desire. It's not an active thing. It is passive, like being a magnet. It has all the hallmarks of sincerity. This is the kind of experience that says, this is the way I am, this is the real me. Compared to that evil desire, it's exactly what it says. A wanting that is wicked, a solid and serious interest to get what is wrong. It is like every other desire. The way you think on it, the way it fits into your thoughts and plans, but it's contrary to God's generosity and it requires sin to be fulfilled. Passion and evil desire are very private, very personal, precious to us. And the Christian must kill them. Yes, at times, this will be very distressing. The way Paul speaks here, think of it, calling on people assembled to worship to kill. He's echoing the words of the Lord Jesus. The call for an unpitying attitude towards our sins. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Paul's expression that the ESV is rendered as what is earthly in you, more literally, specifically, your limbs that are on the earth. The same things he's talking about. And no, I guess we have to do the, um, we live in the world of suits and countersuits. The Lord Jesus Christ is not some pathological maniac who calls people to mutilate their bodies. No, he has taken up a body that was mutilated and made a whole as he's gone to heaven. But he says to you very clearly, your passions and your evil desires, they will require from you drastic action that hurts like you're killing it. Oh, you are impure. Now, the fifth term in Paul's list is really, if you will, the punchline covetousness. Now there is a loaded term. Load up heavy with the tenth commandment. Paul's expression in Greek actually gives it that sort of bold print and underlining. 
the covetousness. Oh yes, there's immorality and there's impurity and passion and desires. And then there's the covetousness. The other four can be diverse in all the particularity, peculiarity of human appetites, the oddity and individuality, individuality of every rebel's foolishness. The coveting, your coveting, is standard. Universal. The bottom and every deep and pro the bottom of every deep and profound make-believing that sin is good. Coveting is wanting contrary to God's generosity. And God is generous. He gives abundantly and kindly to everyone. I know, there is great deprivation. And sin seems to make more sense when there's grievous hardship. It doesn't, that's not true, but we can pass over the extremes to talk about the ordinary. All our sons, all our sins, those done and dusted, the ones angled after, the ones summoning us, the one hoped for, begins with this. God's miserliness, restrictiveness, oppressiveness, and stubborn snubbing of our entitlement. We covet because he has held out on us, because he failed us, because he won't obey us, because our slander paints him black. There. That is what we must kill. That is what killed Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You covet what God did not, does not give. You covet because God did not give, because God is not the God you want. Here is the wisdom of your hands doing wickedness. Here is the counsel whispering in the cleverness of your impurity. Here is the iron that pulls your passion. Here is the logic and mathematics of your evil desires. Here is the direct object. Here is the victim. Here is the target. This is why Paul speaks violence. Do you need more reasons to stand up and kill? I hope the ugliness and the servitude and the wickedness I've described is stirring you towards this holy violence. Do not give way to cynicism. Don't roll over to the lie that until the last day you can be forgiven but not godly. Do not take this frank and apostolic description of your sins as a diagnosis of your state. Christian, you have died with Christ and you have risen with Christ, and your life is hidden with him in God. Revulsion is not your only reason to put your sins to death. You have reasons for stout confidence, reasons to make your sword arm steady and to quicken your battle march. Christian, hear. The Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God in victory. Consequently, your business is to kill sin. Christian, hear. Jesus' Jesus's heavenly victory is your victory. Therefore, on earth now, you're called to attack your sin. Now Paul gives the first reason. After this list of these, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is not a threat 
to straighten out naughty Christians. This is not even a warning to remind you of the salvation that you have only by faith in Christ. Remember Psalm 10? We were there some weeks ago. The promise that the risen Christ would sit at the right hand of God until his people were gathered and his enemies finally crushed. The Christian does have a wise fear of God's wrath. Divine judgment is why our salvation costs Christ so much in our place. And it's the measure of how dearly we've been adopted as his own children. This wrath, this is the wrath of hope. This is the answer to the violent prayers in the book of Psalms. God is not offended by those prayers, and we ought not be embarrassed. The unbeliever meets wrath, meets God's wrath, and the expression of the Bible with weeping and gnashing of teeth, grief and rage. The believer agrees with God's wrath. The believer confesses that Christ bore his own deserved cursing and punishment. The believer takes hope in the coming of God's wrath. Sin will be utterly and completely scoured away. All of the killing of sin will be done. But read carefully. Paul does not say, because the wrath of God will come. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Because the Lord Jesus has stood in the breach and overcome the devil, the world, and sin already now, today. This was last night, this is tomorrow night. Already the kingdom of darkness suffers defeat. You are called to kill sin. This is real. This is part of Christ's victory. This is your agreement with and your enjoyment of and sharing in the earthly turmoil of the glory of Christ's heavenly victory. Rise up. Kill your sins because Christ is waging war against all sin. In him you can not only fight, you can kill Take satisfaction in that. Taste in your daily combat the victory that will overtake this entire world. There's glory in this gore. Now Paul gives a second reason. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Christ's victory has already gathered you in. You've heard the news of the crucified Messiah and the promise of salvation for any wicked man who trusts in him for righteousness. You have believed on him. And you are no longer a prisoner and slave of sin and the world's compulsion. Once you had only your own heart and your own life. But now the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Yes. Sin continues. Yes, your sins continue. Yes, you are in mortal combat with it. And Christ, your Savior, is the victor. Rise, stand up, and fight against sin because already you rely on his victory. Your sin does not disqualify you. It resists you, 
often harasses you, can shame you, always is at hand and within a few steps of meeting a blade to the belly. The Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And his victory is your victory. But how? Paul commands you to kill, but what do you do? Obvious things are obvious. You refuse the moments of seduction. You stop the habits of engagement. You avoid the occasions for indulgence. In a simple phrase, you don't. That is obvious, but also shallow. I don't and I won't. These are the actions. But what about impurity and passion, evil desires? You can take the mechanical further, and you ought to. Divesting yourself of preparation and resources. In Acts 29, excuse me, Acts 19, there are believers, we're told, quote, who had practiced magic arts, and they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Without doing the math, that's a huge investment. And those books and those articles they have, not using them, thinking about them, and they burn them. It's wholesome and good. That's what killing sin looks like. There are obvious and costly actions to take. But how do you draw blood on the inside? I have to warn you. There are serious and well-developed movements among evangelical Christians today denying that God commonly changes the heart with some grievous sin. These teachers hold forth the necessity of killing sexual morality and impurity, but they deny the expectation of death for passion and evil desires. They foolishly transform the ongoing battle with sin into a settled truce that settles for good behavior. Your heart is too alive to bear that. Putting joy, putting the freshness of Christ's glory now off till, till you die. Paul did not hold out such kind of cold war anxiety for you. He called you to kill the passive passion and the active evil desire and the covetous that lives as if God has oppressed you. This is not mechanical. This is not immediate. This is not a silver bullet. This is living by faith. How can you kill passion and evil desire? You kill the covetousness which is idolatry. You displace that false worship of false gods with the worship of the risen Son, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Instead of worshiping sinfulness, rooted in the belief that the true God is unworthy for you, not satisfying to you. Instead, you worship the God who came to make you worthy by satisfying God's wrath for you and working new life in you from the inside out. You worship the God who has gone beyond giving good to you, all the way to taking a curse for you and making good out of your wickedness. Worship is how you kill sin. Yes, 
There are actions and habits and plans, accountability and self-denial, and all sorts of important, wholesome actions. But the energy and the sharp edge comes from worship. I'm not speaking metaphorically. Worship is worship. What we do in the Lord's day, here, now, God as a congregation, is warfare against our sins. It is more than has vast power, but it is most assuredly waging war against our sins as well. This is the concrete practice of Paul's first and fundamental command. This is the warfare that flows out from that blunt command to kill sin. But not just from that blunt command, but from the rationale for that command, the reason for that command. By worship, you seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In worship, you set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Killing sin is part of why private worship and family worship have in past generations been the regular habit of God's people. God's word heard, his praise sung, and his face taught in prayers. These are how you besiege the covetousness, which is idolatry. This is how you kick down those doors. This is how you cultivate a real difference between the sin-crazed world outside your home and the sin-forgiving life under God's love in your home. You and your spouse are not independent, competent adults managing your own lives. You are soldiers side by side in the same war. Yes, you should work, worship together at home. Enjoy the heavenly amidst the earthly. Christ is yours. Open up your oneness to draw in that glory and kill sin side by side. Parents, do not think the main words your kids must hear are don't, never, stop, must, and always. They need to hear the words of worship, glory, forgiveness, victory, compassion, generosity, kindness, wonder, wisdom, beauty, love. We are his people, and he is our God and dwells with us. Worship the Christ and the Father with whom he sits and the Spirit working out their victory over sin and death. This is how we repent from coveting, which is idolatry. This is the heavenly rationale that makes your fight with sin a matter of joy and expectation. A fight, but not a slog of discouragement or a fog of cynicism. The Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God in victory. Consequently, your business is to kill your sin. Jesus' heavenly victory is your victory. Therefore, on earth, now you are called to attack your sin. There is much more. There is much more. But look how you are cherished. And all that your life is, and all that your life is for. First he says to you, you, your sin, your victory, your fight, your worship. 
I'm very mindful. And I have been careful actually. To speak gently and clearly without saying several things. Things that if you will ponder on this, you will know. Are most offensive in our day and place. I'm not avoiding them. I want you to listen and think and know. But I'm going to push this. Worship is not Christian psychology. Worship is not getting feelings. Worship is not pulling up another Bible thing so that I can make a case for why I'm going to be okay. It is glorious and it is good and it really does involve violence against sin. Hear this. This is Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Just praise the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. Make melody to him with tambourine and lyre. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let them, let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. And it is true that by your prayers and the work of this congregation and the sending out of the gospel, the kingdom of darkness is attacked and undone. But here, out of the same worship that will unfold glory for the earth, out of that worship, Here's brought glory for you. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Because he died and risen with Christ. And he's seated at the right hand. And there's victory in you. Pray with me. Oh Lord, I ask that you would give to us proverbs and aphorisms and simplicities that by our reflection and our hearing you would give to us things that fit in our hand that we can give to each other, things that we can hold and marvel at. That out of the grandeur and the glory of your word you would have an eye for the smallness of our eyes and please up out of all of this give to us your beauty, and make us like you by it. Pray in your son's name. Amen. Please stand and let us